Good morning, everybody. Sorry, give me a second here to get myself situated. Sorry if I screw something up here, Austin. Moving all your papers. So just this past week, uh, Google Assistant, in analyzing my browsing habits and my calendar, you know, Google's kind of creepy that way, uh, well, Google decided to give me some articles about giving thanks. Some of the articles that I wound up taking a peek at because of what Google did is out of curiosity, not because I needed, you know, some a how-to on how to give thanks, but it's kind of curious because some of the titles were super curious. One title is, The Science Behind Why You Shouldn't Stop Giving Thanks After Thanksgiving. Another one was, Thoughtful Ways to Say Thanks at Your Thanksgiving Table. And the clincher here is, How to Say, how to say Thanksgiving Grace, Expert Advice on Finding Words to Give Thanks. <laughs> and judging by the fact that these articles exist, there seems to be a felt need out there for advice on how exactly are we to give thanks. Some of the advice on how to give thanks from these articles is quite interesting, as interesting as the titles. Uh, for instance, one of these articles says the key to giving thanks is to start by writing one thank you note at a time. Sounds reasonable. Another says that as you lead the thanksgiving grace, don't let the words get in the way. That suggestion is a little curious to me, but maybe it fits in with the suggestion to have a sing-along at the Thanksgiving dinner table with everybody there. But my favorite suggestion is to say, mahalo, which is the Hawaiian word for thank you. Or if you're so inclined, the article gives a whole list of other thank yous in, in different languages, including salamat and obrigado. Maybe that'll get everybody in a thankful mood, right? As the world scrambles to wrap their mind around the idea of thankfulness and gratitude, we know as Christians we got this figured out, right? Both the way the Bible reminds us in numerous passages to always be giving thanks, we can see that even as the children of God, we certainly lack in this area. We need constant reminder. And this morning we'll look at one of these passages that is about giving thanks, and that is Psalm 100. It is a psalm, the only psalm, in fact, that is labeled a psalm for giving thanks. And again, this is Psalm chapter 100, and if you're using the Bible in the chair in front of you, it's found on page 287. And before we dig into this psalm, uh, Nick Freiberger will come up and read this passage for us. It's a lot of messages. Psalm 100, a psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. For he, the Lord is good, 
His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Thank you, sir. I'm glad you started that, Andy. It was good. Oh, it was Gracie. <laughs> and the hope is that as we look at this text together, that our idea of thanksgiving is readjusted. And as we look at the text together, I hope to trace the idea that giving thanks involves joyful, grateful worship that stems from the knowledge of God and his goodness, love, and faithfulness. Again, giving thanks involves joyful, grateful worship that stems from the knowledge of God and his goodness, love, and faithfulness. And we'll look at this psalm in four pieces here. And the first piece that we'll look at are verses 1 and 2. In, verses one, in verse 1 here, we see the command. There's a command here, the verb is an imperative, which is a command, and it says to make a noise. In other translations, this is rendered as shout. In our giving of thanks, there is no silence involved. The making of noise or the shout is, is that, the shout that is called to be made to the Lord is one that has connotations of paying homage and having great respect for the one who the shout is being made too. There should be great triumph and fanfare and jubilation. We can even think about all those crazy royal weddings that we have witnessed the last few years. I'm sure some of you were taking the day off, watching at home, right, and shouting at the TV. Woo! Right? But you think, imagine all those people lined up on the roads during the royal weddings that we have witnessed. They see the queen, the dukes, the princes, and princesses all pass by. And what do they do? They give a great shout in recognition of who they are. I'm a World War II buff, and the image of VE Day or Victory in Europe Day, this image popped into my mind as I was reading this. There are many well-known images taken from the streets of New York being filled with people shouting and letting loose and all the ticker tape floating in the air to celebrate the end of the war. This is the type of shout that all the nations are called to give here. As you look at who the shout is being made to, it would make sense that there is great jubilation and fervor and fanfare because the shout is being made to God, Yahweh, the one who is the Lord and creator of all nations, the one who simply was and is and always will be. In the next verse, verse 2, in addition to making a shout to the Lord, we are instructed to come before the Lord with singing. As with the first verse, what we are to do as thanksgiving is to make a noise, and this is not simply just a shout this time, but it is a song. There is singing involved. And as awkward as it is for some of us to try to get ourselves to sing, it is something that we are commanded to do. It is normative for God's people to do so. 
giving praise and honor to him in song, and in song, remembering his great works. You think all the way back to Exodus, and after being delivered out of Egypt, what did God's people do? They sang. You can even think about Mary in the Gospel of Luke. Mary saying, my soul magnifies the Lord. After the angel came and told her that she would be the mother of the one who would be called the Son, the Most High. And even the Psalms themselves. They're not only verses for us to be reading, but they are to be sung. That's what God's people did. And singing is something that, call, that Paul calls us to in Ephesians chapter 5, as he speaks about how we are to live in light of the gospel. And he says, Be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making music to the Lord in your hearts. In addition to being a history buff, I'm also a soccer fanatic. And if you like soccer, we should get together sometime and catch a game. And although it's a lot tougher to do here on Arizona time, I wake up early on the weekends to catch the English Premier League, uh, English Premier League soccer, or if you so will, the official term is English Premier League football. But the fans of these teams walk to the stadiums in song. They sing and shout the entire game. And afterwards, they continue to sing and shout as they make their way home. And maybe for some, they continue to make noise in their local neighborhood pub. And American soccer doesn't quite compare, because for some reason, Americans can only ever chant ole, ole, ole for some odd reason. We, we lack in our cheering vocabulary. And the closest thing I think we could relate to maybe is the atmosphere you find with college football. But the singing and the shouting is a picture of what God's people are called to do as they come into the presence of the Lord. And how much more jubilant should our song be since we are not singing about a game, but we are singing to the Lord, the one who deserves all praise. And you think, for the Israelites who were originally singing this psalm, they were singing to the Lord, the one who has delivered them over and over again. They were singing to the one who has kept his promises. And for us on this side of the cross, we are singing about the Lord who has kept his promise of bringing a rescuer. And through the rescuer, he has delivered us from the greatest problem hanging over all people, the problem of sin. And that is the greatest reason we can ever have to sing aloud. But caught in between the imperative to make noise, to make a noise, to shout, and to sing is the command to serve. And this word serve is being used in reference to laboring or working. And it's curious that this verb would be found sandwiched between two other verbs that are talking about totally different actions, right? So what are you, what are you to make of this? And what the psalmist seems to be telling us here is that worship is certainly the public acts that we see of making a noise and of singing. 
But worship does not simply stop there. And that worship extends into all aspects of life. And to quote one commentator, in Hebrew, as in English, worship or service is indivisible. It is a word which leaves no gap or choice between worship and work. So as we make a noise and as we serve and as we sing, are we simply to make this a duty? Is this simply a duty for Christians? And the three commands that we see here in the first two verses are accompanied by the words joyful and gladness. So the answer to that question is that there shouldn't be just simply a sense of duty or a sense of burden that we're dragging a ball and chain to worship. The action that is asked of us in these verses to be done with delight and joy and that we are worshiping the sovereign ruler of the universe. And as the great preacher Charles Spurgeon said, our happy God should be worshipped by happy people. A cheerful spirit is in keeping with his nature, his acts, and the gratitude which we should cherish for his mercies. But that is not to say that we wouldn't ever come across a time where we'd be faced with joylessness. It's something that we will and something that we might be already facing today. But no, the lack of joy doesn't mean the Lord has abandoned you and that you have no reason to sing, no reason to make a shout. The The joy should be there knowing that God is with us and He has not abandoned us. That is of great reassurance to us And a quote appears in Pastor Richard Sibbs, Though we have not always the joy of the Spirit, yet we always have the Spirit of joy. And in these times of joylessness, I would encourage you to continue on in faith and with eyes on the truth of His Word who tell us that the Lord has not abandoned us. And look to God Himself and plead to Him that He would restore that joy And in your pleading, this is an act of worship and trusting in the Lord. And I quote Sibs again, Can you cry to God with strong supplications? Or if you cannot pray with distinct words, can you mourn and groan? The Spirit helps our infirmities when we know not what to ask. The sighing and groaning is the voice of God's Spirit, which He will regard wheresoever He finds it. Again, if you are feeling that sense of joylessness, there is solid truth found in God's Word that He has not left you. That you can continue to worship Him. And that as you worship and plead to God, He would find ways to restore your joy in your acts of obedience. In these first two verses, we have seen what we are called to do as we give thanks, right? But what is it that drives our action? Is it supposed to be a simple just do it, like Nike says we're supposed to just do it? Is it supposed to be our emotions that where all this worship stems from? And what is it that drives us forward in our worship, right? The answer 
to this is found in verse 3. Just take a look there with me. And the foundation of our worship, as we see in verse 3, stems from the knowledge of God. Here in verse 3, we are commanded to know the Lord and that He is God. We are to know Him. Our circumstances, our feelings, or traditions are not what dictate our worship. And those things can change in a split second. And they are things that do not provide a stable foundation. We can even think about the recent correction in the stock market in the last few weeks. If our worship was based on how life was going and all the things around us, I'm sure many folks were great until a decent chunk of their money just disappeared in a blink. Maybe think if our worship stemmed from how we felt about our relationships with other people, how would your worship be? It would certainly be easy and, and fine when everyone's laughing and enjoying each other's company. But if our worship was based on the circumstances and feelings, how would that look when our sin gets in the way of our relationships? What happens when reality doesn't meet our expectations? When there is miscommunication in our relationships, how would our worship look then? And this is exactly why the psalmist is telling us that we need to know God. Our worship can stem only from the knowledge of Him because it never changes. And in the book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer rightly assesses where many churches and many Christians are at in terms of knowing God. And he says, the conviction behind the book is that the ignorance of God, ignorance both of, both of his ways and the practice of communion with him, lies at the root of much of the church's weaknesses today. And he goes on by adding, disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life and lose your soul. In church, I would urge you to continue to pursue the knowledge of God so that all of our worship and our entire lives will be built on the solid foundation, which is the knowledge of Him and the truth of His Word. We certainly have much more to know about God, and God is infinite. May we challenge ourselves to keep on pursuing that knowledge of Him so that our worship and thanksgiving might overflow all the more. And for those that don't know God, realize even though God is infinite, He has made a way for us to know Him through His revelation. That includes the Bible, which is the Word of God. And I would urge you to start seeking to know Him today, and I would urge you to learn not only basic knowledge, but know specifically that the infinite, eternal God offers relationship with Him and it offers life everlasting to all who would trust in Him and turn away from their sin. And there's a hymn that I'm sure many of us have heard, How Great Thou Art. And the third verse of the song so aptly summarizes what we are getting at, what the psalmist is getting at here and the third verse goes like this, But when I think 
that God, His Son not sparing, sent Him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, He bled and died to take away my sin. And then the refrain is, then sings my soul. And as we talk about knowing God, we must understand that there are specifics that we are called to know. It's not simply a vague knowledge or some sort of spirituality or awareness of God. There are specifics that we are to know. If you look here, the Bible is making specific reference to Yahweh, which in our translations is rendered LORD in all caps. When Yahweh is referred to, there is the image of the one who holds fast to the covenant that he has made. If you remember back to Genesis 15, the Lord, in a somewhat weird ritual to us, passes between the carcasses of these dead animals that he has asked Abraham to bring. And in doing so, he is signifying that he is swearing unto his own death that the covenant would be carried through. And that this is the Lord that is being referred to the one who would keep the covenant and deliver his people time and time again, even when they failed. He would uphold that covenant and deliver his people through even the death of his own son. And this is the Lord that we are to know. And we are to know that he is God. There are no others. And adding in the previous five chapters leading up to Psalm 100, this is a point that is driven home. The Lord is God and He is King over all things. There is none that compares. We are also called to know that we are created beings. And the psalmist is leading us through the logical order of the universe. God is infinite, eternal, and all-powerful. It doesn't start with man. It starts with God. Instead, we are to know that we are not the center. We are actually created beings. And being created means we belong to the Creator. The root of the dysfunction in our life is because we screw this up. Sin is us choosing to be our own God and disregarding the true Lord of the universe. This is why we are called to know this specifically. Because we are so apt to screw this up. Though just thinking about ourselves as simply created beings that belong to God seems a little cold, doesn't it? But the psalmist doesn't stop there. simply saying that we are just created beings and we belong to God. The knowledge we possess of God also includes the fact that we do belong to Him, but we are His people and sheep under his care. We can relate back to Psalm 23, right? Passage about the good shepherd. He guides me. I will fear no evil. Your rod and staff comfort me. And for all of us who believe in the gospel and have repented of our sins, we have come to know that belonging to the Lord is a good thing. And that we have received the good shepherd, a shepherd who would lay down his life for his sheep. And this is exactly why we shout, we serve, and we sing. Because there is much joy in recognizing and ascribing 
to God the glory He deserves. There's much joy in knowing we belong to Him and that He shepherds us, not as a hired hand, but as one who would give His life for His sheep. And to summarize where we are at in the text, we have seen what we are supposed to do as a part of giving thanks. We have all seen what is driving our actions, and that is the knowledge of God. The second half of this psalm, as we see here in verses 4 and 5, are almost a reflection of the first half. We are called to worship and exaltation, and those actions, again, are grounded in the knowledge of God. This is not simply just a copy and paste, even though the structure, the passage are a reflection. And verses 4 and 5 are actually... Uh, slightly more nuanced than that, giving us a fuller picture of what we are commanded to do in our worship and in our knowledge. If we look at verse 4, in addition to the shout that we are to make, in addition to the singing, we are to enter the gates with thanksgiving and the courts with praise, blessing, and exaltation. If you just imagine with me here for one second, the image that is presented here is the people of God, and maybe even as they're singing this psalm, coming through the gates to the temple. As you just realize that as they're doing this, there's others there coming into the place where it's the hub of activity. You can realize that there is a public and corporateness to our worship. There's no doing this in private. And as they're doing this, this is not an insignificant thing as they're walking through the gates. So you think walking through the gates is kind of insignificant, but it's not. Because as they walk through the gates, they're reminded of who God is, and especially His righteousness as they bring sacrifices that deal with their sin. So as they're entering in, they're reminded of who God is. As they enter in and being reminded of this, they are to be there with thanksgiving. Legitimate question to ask is, what does it mean to enter with thanksgiving since this psalm is a psalm for giving thanks? So like, first portion of the psalm, we see giving thanks involves shouting and singing. So giving thanks involves thanksgiving. Seems kind of odd. I think what the psalmist is getting at is what we could describe as enumerating our thanks. It is giving praise to God and literally thanking Him for what He has done and for what He will do, for He is God. And yes, this could be a heart posture or an attitude of general thankfulness towards Him, but I think in conjunction conjunction with the previous part of this passage that there's an audible shout, right? This thanksgiving, there's a verbal aspect to this And actually another instance of the word here being used for thanksgiving is actually rendered as confess in other part of the Bible. So in other words, what giving thanks or having thanksgiving actually looks like is literally giving thanks with our mouth. And as the knowledge of who God is pushes us to give thanks, the act of giving thanks with our mouths gives glory to God the glory that he so deserves. It would be a fitting question to ask, 
How are you in giving thanks and praise to the Lord? Have you given thanks to the Lord, not simply for the things that are circumstantial, but rather for who He is? And have you given this thanks out loud? Maybe even saying, thank you, Lord, that you are sovereign over my life. It's something I struggle in. I'm supposed to leave my family in this too, right? I know I have much to learn in how to do this. But just think, have you done that recently? Making an audible noise or maybe even making a shout, maybe even singing. But again, in following with the pattern that we've seen in the first half of this psalm, we again see in verse 5 the ground for our thanksgiving and praise. And here the ground for our action is extremely clear as we get the word for. This word for is the connector of these two thoughts. So as we enter the gates with thanksgiving and give the Lord praise, for he is good. And his love, his hesed, endures forever, and his faithfulness continues to all generations. We give thanks and praise for the Lord is good. His love endures forever, and his faithfulness continues to all generations. That is why we give thanks and praise. Indeed, knowing that God is good is certainly a compelling reason for us to possess joyful and grateful worship. And as one theologian puts it, for everything God does is good and everything he is, is good. All his attributes are good. All his decrees are good. All his actions are good. And there is nothing in God that is not good. And in a world of sin and brokenness, this is quite the reassurance to us, is it not? Knowing that the sovereign Lord who owns us and the one who watches over us as his sheep is good. We know of his goodness because it is expressed in his steadfast love or his hesed, as we see here. Hesed, if you remember from Chuck's sermon in Ruth a few weeks ago, is the loving, loyal, covenant-keeping kindness of God towards his people. And as we have studied Ruth, we have seen God and his steadfast love, his covenant-keeping kindness and showing care for his people is even evident, including, even including a foreigner, Ruth, and his family. And he has shown that same love and care and covenant-keeping kindness all throughout the Bible. The Lord shows his goodness and his love as he leads his people out of captivity, as he provides a kinsman, redeemer, and even as he disciplines his people. And the ultimate show of the Lord's love, kindness, and faithfulness is in Him keeping the covenant. In Him taking upon Himself to fulfill the covenant, to fulfill the promises He made, even if it meant death. And this is exactly what He did. Sending His Son to earth to live a life reflective of the obedience that we are called to. Even though Jesus lived the life not deserving of the punishment of sin, Jesus died in the place of sinners and took on the wrath of God. This is the gospel. And that we who don't deserve grace were shown 
grace because of the Lord's loving kindness and His faithfulness. And this is what should drive us to sing to Him, to serve Him, and to shout to Him. The Lord is God and we belong to Him and we know that He is good. His love endures for forever to all generations. And if the readers of this psalm, the original readers of this psalm, sung and shouted with joy, how much more shall we then, after encountering the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have been given the full picture of what was a mystery. And may our hearts be stirred in worship, stirred to sing praise, stirred to give thanks to the Lord, for He is God, the God who has given His Son to redeem us through faith. As we reflect back on verses one, on verse one, may we also be stirred into action, since we know not all the earth is worshiping. All the earth is called to worship, but the earth is not. And we share this wonderful knowledge of who God is and what he has done as we await his return. And this morning I was uh, kind of just uh, fiddling a little bit. Sometimes I fiddle too much with, with things, including my sermon. But I think this was a good type of fiddling. Last night I was encouraged by a word from Pastor Randy. He was reading my notes and shot me a message. And he said this. Now he would question why should he give thanks if it wasn't for the word reminding him that he alone is good. That he alone is worthy of praise and thanksgiving even if one more prayer is never answered according to his desire. The Lord is good. He has saved us and redeemed us and He keeps us. We can trust in that. Knowing that should cause us to sing for joy and shout for joy and to serve Him. Let's pray.